Welcome to Saving You is Killing Me, Loving Someone with an Addiction podcast. Loving someone with an addiction is a life of chaos. This podcast is to help you take back your power and build strength, hope, and restore peace in your life. We use the science and art of positive psychology, professionals in their field, along with personal stories of hope, resilience, and strength. We hope you can discover how the courage to focus on you can help put your life back together. When you are in a place of exhaustion, hopelessness, and emptiness, we are a community that knows all too well the turmoil that comes from loving someone with an addiction. We are here to help you compassionately struggle well. Hey there, you're listening to the Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction podcast hosted by me, Andrea Seidel. I'm the author of Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction, and Saving Me One Day at a Time, Finding Light Amidst the Shadows of Addiction. I am here for you and this podcast is for you if you're ready to find a way to struggle well, to reclaim your power and to live life happier while you're navigating loving or losing someone to addiction. I wholeheartedly believe that when you love someone with an addiction, your life gets damaged in some way. So since we can't control someone else's addiction, but we are greatly affected by it, the number one thing that we can do is take back our power and focus on us ourselves. Just remember that the thoughts and perspectives that I share on this show are mine and those of the guests on the show. So if you ever hear anything harmful or triggering, I'm pre-apologizing and we always aim to do better and we value your feedback as well as your permission to be human. So please use all the content here as educational and informational and not for the purpose of medical diagnosis, treatment, or prescription in any form. That being said, let's dive into today's episode. Hey there, Andrea Seidel here, and I'm so happy that you're here. Although I always say I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, but needless to say, I am so thrilled that we are together and that we can support each other. And today is a really special episode because I have an amazing guest joining us on the show today, and she's going to offer us so much insight because let's face it, when you love someone with an addiction or you have lost someone to addiction, it is affects the entire family. It is so wholeheartedly devastating on so many levels that I always say that, and this is why I created the community, the SYKM community, my books and the podcast and everything is because we, we struggle alongside. We're cast in that shadow of addiction and it is not easy. It is so devastating. And because we are, we're the ones watching someone we love kind of turn into empty vessels of humans or, you know, the addiction takes hold of them. And then we really wish that the person we love would come back or, you know, or make better choices. Or, you know, we go down that whole path is like, why are they doing this? And what can we do? And anyway, I digress. I go off on a tangent because I lived it myself. I loved someone with an addiction and I lost someone to addiction and it was devastating for me. It was my spouse. And so for our wonderful guest on the show, I cannot wait to introduce you to her, Donna Marston. Thank you so much for being on the show. Welcome. Thank you for having me. 
So I always start, I know it's a big question, but I always start, tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. So my story um, is that I'm a mother who has a son who's a person in long-term recovery. And what that means is that my beautiful boy um, was lost in, in the bowels of his addiction from the age of 15, and he got sober at uh, 25 or found recovery at 25. Um, through those years, those extremely difficult years, I thought I was going to die of a broken heart. I I um, was in the fetal position. I was in bed for the first six months when I found out that uh, this was going on. I had no clue. I suspected for a long time. But when I would ask him questions, he would make me feel like I was crazy. So, and, um, you know, I had a really, I, I had to, I navigated this by myself because what I found out the hard way is when people find out your secret that you love somebody in active addiction, it's like you have cooties and your phone, my phone stopped ringing and uh, just was on this path by myself. And I didn't want my husband to help. I just wanted everybody out of the way. So I thought I could love him into recovery. And I found out the hard way that that's not possible. I could love him unconditionally. And I had to learn to set healthy boundaries. Oh my gosh. And I just like, I have goosebumps because I bet so many listeners are thinking and feeling the exact same way in that we wish so wholeheartedly that we could love someone into recovery. Right. And I, and sometimes I thought like, like, can we love them hard enough to right. make them, you know, choose a life with us or like, like get to open them up to seeing, you know, what's going on. And, um, and it's just, it, you know, that how you expressed it, like you thought that you were going to die of a broken heart. Like I can so relate to that on such a profound, deep level. And I'm so sorry, you know, that that is what you went through. And then the whole fact too, that you were isolated from your friends, because yes, let's face it, we carry that degree of shame. I too didn't share too much with my friends. And this is the whole reason why we are here, why we're having this conversation, because you and I are both on a mission to turn our pain into purpose. And um, I just want to celebrate you and, and thank you so much for sharing that vulnerability. Oh, thank you. Very welcome. Um, yeah, I, I've taken my mess and turned it into my message. <laughs> Ooh, I haven't used that one before. I like because that. I can yeah. tell you when I was living in all of that chaos and drama and just mess, I, I was messy because I didn't know what I was dealing with. And, you know, I, I looking back, I did so much wrong, all in the name of love. Okay, and, let's talk about that because I think a lot of listeners are going to be relating to that in so many levels. So, and so what was most challenging for you about that? Well, there was about loving him unconditionally. And is that what you're talking about? Yeah, like most challenging for you in that situation where um, you were in the muck and oh, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't know what I was dealing with. So that, that was an issue. I had no clue because he would tell me I was crazy. 
and I started to begin to think I was crazy, but I, I just spiraled. I just, you know, I would follow him. I would, I would go through his room. I would go through his diary is how I found out. And, um, you know, I have some very strange stories that, that went on and I just, I got, I got caught up and, and lost in all of this mess. And I didn't know how to get out of it. I didn't know what to do. I was, I was as sick and suffering as he was. And one of the things I've learned is we mimic each other's behaviors. When our kids or loved ones are sick and suffering and we don't have the coping skills or the tools to manage our emotions, we're sick and suffering as well. Because here I am mourning the loss of a child who's still alive. And, and that's hard to navigate through. Yes. What do you do? So I was paying off drug dealers. I would show up to places that I shouldn't have shown up to. You know, I just, I did, I became crazy. Uh, there was I just, just there I want no common sense, yeah. I guess, is the best way to say it. I just, I just ran and, and, and I just thought it was my job as his mother to rescue and save him from his addiction and the lifestyle he was living. And I found out the hard way. That's not my job. I can love him unconditionally. I can set healthy boundaries. I can learn how to mend and heal my broken heart. And I can love him unconditionally. And, and I had to figure out what that looked like. Oh my gosh. Okay. So I just want to celebrate the fact and that you're sharing this because I know the listeners are probably in the very, very much the same situation. For me, I got completely caught up in it as well. And, and it's amazing how we suddenly start to like realize that like it, it like it kind of makes us feel crazy and it makes us seem like what? And then it's amazing how we get pulled and I always say pulled into their quicksand. Mm. And so, um, so just by sharing that, I just want to express the humanness in it and that we, we show up and I often say there's a lot of shame associated with, you know, you're, you're enabling or you're, you know, but we show up in a way that anyone would show up when they love another human. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I don't know it from a mother's perspective. I can only imagine how wholeheartedly devastating that would be. I do have two children. I have two bonus children and it, I can't imagine that. I know it from a spouse perspective and it is so devastating and you do get caught up in it. You show up in a way because you do so much love this person and you want to help, you want to save, you want to fix, you want to, you know, and so I just, I thank you so much for sharing that because there's nothing wrong with us. Uh, if you are showing up in that way, there's nothing wrong with you. And um, I just want to make sure that we we talk about that and permission to be human, because mm-hmm. if you are showing up and maybe you don't have your boundaries in place, or maybe you are, you know, walked on like a doormat and or fooled. And I was like you too. I had the wool pulled over my eyes until I knew what I was dealing with. And then it was, oh my goodness. It's like, that is so, so. So tell me then, you said you moved into recognizing that it's not your job and that, you know, so how did you go from being kind of caught up in it all to a point like what, what transitioned for you? 
it was two years before he he found his recovery that I had um, at the time I was a hairdresser and I had a salon and and a client gave me a book um, and by Esther and Jerry Hicks. And it was really, it was just something, a book I couldn't get through. It just, it just didn't do it for me. So she said to me, just go to page, I think it was like 132 or page 32. I forget what it was. And it was an emotional scale. And when I read the emotional scale, I was number 22. I was depressed. I was full of despair. I'm in the fetal position. I am not emotionally available to anybody who's healthy that's in my life. And it hit me, like someone hit me with a two by four. It's almost like it knocked sense into me and woke me up. Mm -hmm. And when I saw like how sick I was, I thought, oh, I, I have to, I have to change, and the change starts with me. And so for me, I, um, I, I ended up going to a, um, to a, a, a codependence anonymous meeting on Friday mornings. It was all women, and, and I, and I really loved it, and I learned, and and that was the start of my journey navigating to my recovery program. Because it's really important that parents or uh, other family members, partners, spouses, that we find a recovery program that works for us so that we can keep our heads above water and keep moving forward, living a healthier, happier life. Mm. Oh, my gosh. Yay. Well, I'm celebrating that that pivotal moment for you. And and yeah, sometimes it just takes something as simple as like one page in a book. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And like so. I, I don't know if everyone, not all the listeners know, but I, I have a publishing company and I always say that books change, have the power to change lives and they have this ripple effect. And for you, it was that one page. And, and that is why, you know, you have now also written a book and I have my books as well. And in hopes that, you know, what resonates with one person may not resonate with another, but another page might like, you never know um, that moment, but I always just really want to emphasize this fact that it comes to a point sometimes where it's just like, I just can't do this anymore. Or, oh my goodness, it's almost like, and, and if, if you've gotten to that point and you're you're listening, then, you know, it's always baby steps, one foot in front of another. Mm-hmm. And it and things, you know, we can take back our power. We can turn the focus back onto us. And if you're not quite there yet and you're still caught up in the grips of their addiction and you're on that emotional scale and, and you know, um, like Donna and feeling like you want to just curl up in a little ball, that's okay too, you know, it it gets to a point where you know and you recognize, okay, I need to take my power back. I need to turn the lens back on me. I need to focus on me. And even if it's just like, you know, slow and steady. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you, like, you know, you did say that you recognize it's not your job. I need to get my head above water. So for those listening to that feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm drowning. Like what what message would you have for them? Ask for help, reach out for support, uh, you know, find another mom or, or or somebody who's walked in your shoes that can that you can lean on and, and um, share your story with. You know, one of the, the hard lessons I learned is that we're sick as our secret. And I was so fearful of people finding out because my you know, husband and I were both in sales 
And I had another child who was in high school at the time. And, you know, you get blackballed in, in your community. And this was, my son has been in recovery for 15 years now. And he used, there was a, a 10 year span of using. So you didn't talk about it back then like, like we do now. So I think it's really important to be open and honest. Um, and, I, and I think it's also important to understand that when our loved ones are in active addiction, they don't want us to get healthy, especially if we're the unhealthy helper. And what I mean by that, and, and so this is language I don't use. Um, I don't like the words codependent and enabling. And in my one of my books, I had it, and I rewrote the book actually to get rid of that language because it's shaming and blaming us for loving our, somebody who, who has a brain disorder. And, and, and if they had anything else, people would bring it, be bringing us casseroles. And they don't do that when, when our loved ones have a substance use disorder. Okay, you're talking my language. <laughs> I always say that I use the word codependent and enabling, but I always use it with a cringe. And then I usually add a disclaimer, like there's no shame and blame. And really what it is, it just means you're a loving, kind, caring person showing up for someone you love. Right. And so I love that you bring that up and I really appreciate it's true. It's like a lot of finger pointing. And, and um, so one of your major lessons learned here um, is this idea is, is that your family, like it's a, like it's a family disease and that there's a lot of shame and, and that it's come a long way. But what you're saying is in the past, like it, you just wouldn't talk about it. And so reaching out to help is one of, for help and support and community when you're going through this is a, what really helped you. Right. Yeah. Not in the late nineties. <laughs> you didn't talk about it. So let's he, talk got, about he got sober in 2008, actually on Mother's Day. Oh, my gosh. After a suicide attempt that that night. And interesting, I did. I So I ran Family Sharing Without Shame for 12, over 12 years in, in New Hampshire. And uh, my son was one of my speakers. And one night he talked about the night before he went to treatment, how he attempted suicide with all the drugs that were in my house that I didn't know about. And I was like the exorcist, my head spun. Yes. <laughs> and there were so many emotions because I'm your mother and I didn't know it. Thank by the grace of God, he, you know, he woke up and realized that he should go to treatment, but he had left a note. I would have found it on Mother's Day. Oh my gosh. Right? They're just the, the, the insanity. Yeah. It is, it is unbelievable. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that, but that it did end like in such a fantastic way. And, um, I just, you know, I, but you still went through the process of processing all of that. You still had to find that note and, and to realize the, the, the darkness of that. Mm. So, which brings me to my next question and it kind of, um, relates to your whole mission here is this idea of sharing without shame. And can you talk a little bit about that? It's, yes. So sharing without shame, whether it's whether you have a child in active addiction or you love somebody in active addiction or they're in recovery, is, is, is I think it's a way of freeing ourselves from that heaviness that we carry because I'm not ashamed that I have a son and who's a person in long-term recovery. Years ago, I was... Um, but I think no matter what we do, 
it's important not to share without shame because we have the right to our feelings and we have the right to express them because whatever I say without shame may help one other mom may help. It may, I, I've had my words when I spoke at treatment facilities to the residents and they 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 wanted to go home and hug their mom and and it made a difference in their world and you know it just it's just sharing without shame is being open and honest about ourselves and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable and and it, and and it also brings you know empathy and compassion to to anybody who's walking in our shoes and that is so beautiful. And I and I really agree with you on so many levels in that once we've lived something, we've lived an experience, if we were to keep it to ourselves, and I'll share a little personal story is that I had, after I lost my addicted loved one, I wrote, started writing the book, Saving You is Killing Me, mm. the one loving you, loving someone with an addiction. And it was so hard for me to write, but I knew I needed to, you know, use my psychology background and resilience training to help people who are going through this struggle. And I have to say, I almost authored it under a pen name because I was so embarrassed and shamed that I had gone through what I did. First of all, I didn't want to slander the person that I was with. However, I just made sure he wasn't in it in any way. I didn't share, I shared my story from my perspective without, you know, slandering him in any way. And I realized, no, if I do that, I'm hiding behind you know, shame. And the idea here is, is that I'm going to confidently put my name on this and I am going to create a support group. I'm going to create a podcast and I like no more shame because me sharing my vulnerability is what's brought this amazing community together that is helping so many people and all the amazing humans that show up there in the group and they share their stories or they write in the comments and things like that. It really touches my heart and it's helping and it has a ripple effect. So exactly what you're sh saying and your message of sharing without shame is when you're, when you are vulnerable, it can help so many other people because you can come from a place of understanding from compassion empathy and it's just such a beautiful space to be so there's no shame in it and and like mm -hmm. it's it's I'm, I love your message and I'm so grateful and your website is even sharingwithoutshame.com so everything good. sharing without shame I started off as peeling the onion which was my first book which was under a pen you know Donna M now I've rewritten my all my books and and now I have my name because I'm proud of what I've done and and I need to be open and honest and not hide behind a pen name. So yeah, yeah. so I get that. We share that. We share that. Isn't it yeah. interesting though, right? Because the subject matter is so dark. And so I, let's celebrate you and I yeah. and everyone in the community that's sharing and, 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 um, as scary as it is sometimes for people to post, I know a lot of people in the group too post anonymously because they have that. Um, and so I just I just want to celebrate everyone who is sharing and reaching out and supporting other people going through loving or losing someone to addiction because that that is a vulnerable place. It is you know there is some degree of shame. So I also I also talk about this idea of secondhand shame. 
And I find that this works worked really well for me. And I, I love this concept because what we do is we take on someone else's addiction and the shame around it. And we take it on as our own. And it's almost like, I remember when I was, this was when I was in the muck and I remember almost covering him, uh, covering things up. I would explain it, why he's not showing up to parties or like, you know, family get togethers, why he wouldn't come on vacations anymore. And you know, why he's sleeping so much and blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah. And I remember having secondhand shame. Like I was almost embarrassed because of his addiction Mm -hmm. and I took on that shame. And so, I don't know, does that resonate with you? Oh yeah. Especially, you know, well, with, I didn't really let friends know for a while, but with my family, I, I just remember like they didn't really want him to come to holiday parties or they were, or he would come down just to get gifts of money and leave. And I, and I knew what was going on and just the shame would just, and I didn't want to say anything and you're hoping that they don't notice. And, uh-huh. but yeah, it, we certainly do take it on. And, and, and that's a heavy load because not now we, we have our own and then we have that. It's, you know, I always tell people, I, yeah, we have a cart or a backpack and it's full of all the shame and all this stuff and sometimes it just isn't ours and and until we unpack it we can't lessen the load for ourselves and we and and it's heavy this is heavy stuff this is heavy stuff yes it is so I'm curious how did you start taking your power back (laughs) well I um I went to I started, I went to a couple of Al-Anon meetings and it just didn't work for me because I wanted answers. And I actually felt like, just tell me the answer to how to save my son. Cause my son is not like your kids. I did not raise my child to do drugs. <laughs> he came from a nice household, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I learned that addiction has no boundaries. Doesn't matter what your financial marital or any of those statuses are. Exactly. Addiction is what it, it's going to, it affects everybody. Um, I'm sorry. I just lost my train of thought. How you took your power back. Oh, so what I did is, um, that's, that stuff just wasn't, those meetings just weren't working for me. I went on a very lonely spiritual journey and I, um, ended up working with a mentor and becoming a Shambhali Reiki master. And I went on this uh, spiritual journey of healing and moving forward and releasing any shame and um, just trying to become a better version of myself so that I could do the work and be prepared to do the work that I didn't know what was laid out before me. And by doing that, you know, I grew up in a generation where, you know, there was a lot of fears, your fear of what people think, fear of judgment, all this stuff. By by doing the um, the healing process that I did, it allowed me to move forward without shame and to release some of those fears. I mean, I'm a work in progress. So I'm always working on myself, but we all are. <laughs> yeah. But it was able I was able to once I was able to connect that brought me to a place where I was able to surrender him over to a power greater than me 
through meditation. And there was a day, which was a really hard day. It always makes me cry. I'm sorry. And I handed him over. I, I envisioned through meditation, I had envisioned him in a casket that I had. I lost my beautiful boy to his addiction. Plain and simple. Yeah. And so I envisioned him and it wasn't like I made it up. Like I could see him through this, this work I was doing in a casket and, and hands came down and I handed him over literally. And, and it was a very difficult moment, but it was also a beautiful moment because I was able at that point to let go. Um. And start to really put one foot in front of the other and to start working on me and doing and creating the the family sharing without shame program. And then I ended up writing my first book through that time called peeling the onion. And, um, and it just, just, it took on a life of its own. I didn't plan this out. It just happened. And so for that spiritual journey, I was just led and I followed the gifts that were given. Oh my gosh. I just want to celebrate um, you taking your power back and how beautiful that journey was for you in terms of Reiki and energy healing and just a spiritual journey in, in, in all, right. And that it allowed you to really dig into the power of meditation and, and then that visual and that, that huge release and that ability for you to just decide that letting go as hard. I, I, I feel, and I hear the pain in your voice and that, you know, um, I have tears in my eyes, contagious tears and I feel for you. And I just, I can't even imagine that, but that the just beautiful, but devastating at the same time and just heart wrenching and almost really relinquishing control, just letting mm -hmm. go. is like, um, and just how, how much lightness you must've felt in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when you think about it, being with our children for the first 18 years, we tell them what to do, when to do and how to do it. And all of a, and then here he is, he's sick and there's nothing I can do to make it better until he hit his enough. I hit my enough two years before he, he found his recovery. He hit his enough when he was 25 and started to work a recovery program. And, and, and I think that's an important message for everybody to learn. We can, we can become human pretzels trying to manage, control the, their addiction and what they do and keeping them safe. When they hit their enough is when they'll be able to start moving forward. I don't like the word rock bottom or words rock bottom. I think mm -hmm. those are scary words to wish upon anybody because some people don't come out of it. To me, that's, that's like, that's the end zone. And we could be, so I always ask the parents I work with to, to get rid of some of the old language, the stigmatizing language and, and pray that pray positive things. So I used to pray that, and I'm not a religious person. I just want to put that out there. Uh, I do believe in, you know, higher power, but but my prayers used to be, I, I don't want him to use drugs. 
take me. <laughs> oh. What I learned to do in, in, through my spirituality was my prayers would be, I pray that my son lives a healthy, happy life because the universe doesn't understand the word don't. So every time I said, I don't want, I don't want, I kept getting more of it and I didn't understand it. When I changed my, my, my prayers to being positive, it started to unravel and it started to move forward and positive things started to happen. Ah, oh, that's profound. It almost reminds me of that saying, like, you know, if you say to a little kid, don't touch that plug, it's like, it's going to go and touch the plug because you just brought the attention to it. So I love, I love that concept. And yeah, so in your prayer, I love also that you bring up the fact that we can pray, whether we believe in a God or anything like yeah. Spiritual practice and and for me too, I like I say, you know, dear God or like higher power or universal energy or whoever's out there. Um, prayer is so profound because it's just like connecting to something greater or bigger than yourself, and that's spirituality. Mm -hmm. And I love that you brought that up and that the fact that when we pray, it's like moving it into the positive, and um, that 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 setting that intention and just praying for you know, and it, that's almost like letting go as well. It's like setting asking for support, asking for help, obviously, um, and strength. Um, but also your example was so good too, about like praying for that. My son is healthy and whole and, you know, finds his path and, and you bring up the most profound thing as well that we really want to talk about is this idea that there's nothing we can do. Mm. And that, that, that is so hard to hear that, you know, when we love someone, whether it's our children, our spouse, or, you know, our sisters or brothers, we love them so much. And to be told or to know that there is nothing that we can do. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, that is so hard. So can we talk a little bit about that? How do we stay positive in that? How do we pray positive? How do we uh, stay in a place that, and you did bring it up. You said, you know, setting your boundaries and you said, um, what else did you say? You said uh, your lessons learned with setting boundaries and then letting them find their own recovery that they're going to, and we don't want to use the word rock bottom, but when they're ready, they will find recovery and that there's really nothing we can do. How do we sit with that? What can we do? I always say like, what can we do? Mm. I, I think asking them, what would recovery look like for you? see what they say. And, you know, I, it, one of the things I had to learn to be a good listener to my son, um, because I'm a fixer. I wanted to fix it all. And I think that's very common of women. We, we, we want to fix and we want everyone to be healthy and happy. And, um, so I, 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 I got this book. Um, you can heal your life by Louise Hay in the movie. And every time I started to watch the movie, I'd fall asleep. I never got to see the whole thing. And I left it on my desk and he would, he came and he found it. And every night when he came home, he would watch that movie and he read the book and that was part of his recovery. So I found that instead of trying, we often talk at them and not with them. I was a talker at her. <laughs> Let me tell you what to do, how to do. I don't know what addiction feels like. I don't have a, a substance use disorder. So who am I to tell him how to work a recovery program? I've never worked one. So I had to stay in my lane. I had to 
get, you know, readjust and go stay in a lane that to learn what, what works for me as an unhealthy helper and then find tools that would work for us. And I found leaving books around. He might pick it up. He might read it. It might make a difference. Asking him questions. What can I do to support you? Is there anything that I can do to help you work through what, you, what you're going through? Finding ways to allow them to still be in your world. And so one of the things that I'll tell you, this is a story that I had with a parent that would come to my group and she was, um, she was remarried. And so her son was not allowed on the property or in the house. He wasn't allowed in the house for a meal and he was homeless and the mother was sick over it. And so she came to me and said, what do I do? And I said, how about you have a picnic table because it was it was it was warm at the time i think it was spring or summer and she said yeah i said did your husband say he can't come on your property and she said no i said so have him over for dinner and have it at the picnic table you get to see him you get to feed him and don't talk to him about his addiction Bring, bring out like a, a picture book of, of when he was a little boy. Remember when we did this, how much fun that was? I loved that time with you. Do things like that that are positive because when we're pointing our finger, blaming and shaming them for being addicted, all we do is put up walls. It's just finding ways that we can still be in our lives with somebody who's unhealthy. How do we do that? It could, if, if you could meet them at McDonald's, if your child's homeless and buy them a meal and just have a conversation, sit back and listen. And if they don't want to talk, don't talk, just hold space with them. That's beautiful. I love your expression, staying in your lane. It is so hard. <laughs> so hard. You're so right. hard. Well, I, but- weave, I weave in and out. Yeah. And that's okay. No shame. Right. It's like, okay. Yep. I did the same thing. I did the same thing. We go up and down. We're human beings and and we, I can do something really well. And then a week later, all of a sudden I make a mess of it again. Yeah. And that's, that's permission to be human. Right. Right. Okay. I love this, that you left a book out here and there and that, you know, there's ways to still practice boundaries, but then also still in, in, um, invite them in without, you know, crossing the line in terms of enabling. And we don't like those words, but in in terms of uh, unhealthy helping. And so this idea too, is just being present, ask questions and listening and then staying in our lanes. But what I love the most about what you said too, is this idea of when you were taking back your power and you're focusing on you and you were reading these books and you're, you know, focusing on uh, restoring your well-being and safeguarding your well-being, it had this ripple effect and it almost like, you know, he, he caught wind of your book or he like, you know, so it's almost like when we focus on ourselves and lift ourselves up and we're working our own recovery. And when I say our own recovery, I mean, recovering the person we were before mm-hmm. taken down by someone else's addiction is kind of getting ourselves back. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how sometimes, not always, but sometimes it can have that effect of helping pull people almost into 
your vortex or pull people into your upward spiral because you are taking good care of yourself and you're, and we don't want to be doing our self-care practices and self-compassion and, and that kind of things for the purpose of getting, you know, um, our addicted loved one to find recovery, but rather because we want to save ourselves and safeguard our mental health. But it might have, it could possibly also have a ripple effect on the family and help to pull pull everyone in that upward spiral. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I did um, was every morning I would write something I was grateful for. And especially when I was in the midst of this and I was starting to get healthy. Um, and there were days I couldn't find anything. And I would be like, okay, I'm healthy. I, I, I'm grateful because I opened my eyes today. You know, I would write stuff like that. And eventually, you know, you start writing a lot of stuff. Um, and at night, I would keep a journal of what went on. And as I got healthier, I found a bunch of my journals and I got to see how sick I was. And, and it just, it blew me away. I got to see where I was and how far I had come. Because we don't often, we're not often aware of our healing. And as we move forward, the gifts that we give ourselves. Yeah. And also, I just want to celebrate you and able to go back and look at your journal and recognize. And of course, there's no shame around like the definition, like saying you were sick. Um, I, I I like to use the word out of balance. I was out of balance. I was sucked into the, the, the shadows of addiction. And so I have that same journal. I have that red journal. I still keep it on the shelf. And it's amazing of how I was like, what? I would like, you could see me journaling and like to the point now. And, and that is the beauty in the process, right? And, mm-hmm. and just honoring where we're at at every given moment without judgment, self-compassion, self-care. It makes sense that I was in that place. Mm-hmm. It makes sense that I was struggling so much because I loved a man so much and um I was it makes sense like giving yourself that beautiful self-compassion around it so if someone's feeling like they're journaling and they're recognizing that oh my gosh I'm sick it's like instead of you know putting that label on yourself recognizing well maybe you know a little out of balance it makes sense that I'm sucked out of balance because of what's going on and so that's that whole concept of how addiction affects the entire family Mm-hmm. And so can we speak to that a little bit, how sure. addiction affects the entire family? Mm. Well, it, so it, we all take on roles. We take on family roles and each role is attempting to keep balance for the family unit. And um, so there's, I, so I have a, one other child and a husband. So in my family, I was the unhealthy helper. And then my youngest son was sometimes the scapegoat, really angry, really, really angry. They're the, they're the truth tellers. And, um, and most of the time he was the lost child. He would go to his room, isolate, just leave him alone. He, you know, he was doing his art or whatever. Um, there's the the like the court jester, the joker who who can make the person with the substance use disorder feel really uncomfortable because they make jokes. They crack jokes about what's going on. 
And, and um, so I'm trying to think who else are, is that it? There's the, they call it the, the chief enabler. I call it the unhealthy helper, the scapegoat, the uh, lost child, and the, the, um, the court, like the court jester. I've one. also heard of the firefighter where they're trying to put out fires. <laughs> oh, I never heard that one. Yeah. <laughs> Makes sense, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, so everybody takes that on. And, and, and if we're not aware and there's children or other people, I mean, they can get really sick too. And what does that look like? And, and he, you know, as a mom, I didn't realize how, much it affected my younger son. And he was 17 at the time, 16, 17, something like that. And one night he came home and he was, he was under the influence. He drank a lot and he got sick and he's crying to me about his brother. I was so caught up in all the other stuff. I wasn't paying attention mm. to him. And so, you know, I was able to help him navigate his role and just talk about it. You know, boys have a hard time talking about stuff. And I, and it, it, girls will come out one way or the other. You'll hear about it. But boys have a, a tough time. But, yeah, it just, it's really being insightful that we all take on a role. We all, um, we just can become really emotionally unwell. And, and it affects our health. Yes. Back in the day, I went to this doctor for other, you know, some other reasons. And she did all this blood work and my adrenal system was completely off and diagnosed me with PTSD. Yes. So common when you love someone with an addiction, that just the, the downward spiral of the stress, just chronic activation, the stress response, suppressing our immune system. And there's so many things that affect us and stress has so many negative implications if it's chronic and it's distress. Uh, so, oh my gosh. So yes, I, I, that's kind of neat to have like, yeah, I did never like other than hearing about it, you know, the, we do, we take on these roles and, and you're, the whole family is impacted. And then from my perspective is like, it was the parental figure. And so to the point where the parental figure abandons them, doesn't show up, doesn't come home. Like how does mom explain this out and um, starts talking rude to mom and starts talking rude to the children and grumpy and like sleeping on ends. What's wrong with them? Explaining out behavior, this and that. And like it impacts the whole family. And then to just for mine just up and disappeared. And just before that too, actually, my son went on a walk with me and I was quite upset. And we were just like, let's go on a walk because that's my thing, right? To downregulate my nervous system. And he's like, mom, he's been mean to you for over a year. It is unbelievable. And this was before we knew my son was telling me that he's not the person he used to be. He would say to me, something's going on with him. You don't deserve this. My son, my teenage son was saying this to me. Mm -hmm. And so it almost made me realize, holy cow, like this behavior is impacting like, and then I almost like I turned into mama bear at that point. It's like, oh my gosh, like I need to protect my children. I need to, you know, like I went into mama bear mode and it almost took just that conversation to realize like how I can't stick this out any longer. Like I need to look at, look at what I can do for the future. Look how I can like separate myself. And then it ends up, he ended up leaving anyway, because I got in the way of his addiction. So, 
But you're right. Like it so impacts the whole family that we don't even realize the impact. So all we can do is save ourselves, turn the focus back onto us, reclaim our power and, you know, do that through very individual ways. Like there's so many different ways for you with the Reiki, the meditation and, and just almost surrendering over and the letting go was one of the ways that took back your power, reaching out to community like you did, um, starting groups, journaling and writing your books. Um, so many fantastic ways that, that you were able to kind of claw your way back in above water. So I'm curious if there's one final thing you would love the listeners to hear, what would it be? There's no right or wrong way. We have to find our way. We have to find what works for us and our family unit. And it's just keeping our heads above water, taking care of ourselves, providing ourselves with self-care. That's one of the most important things. And it was a hard, it's a hard lesson. I, I think a lot of women just don't take care of themselves um, we're so used to doing it for everybody else, but it's it's a really important factor. And and just reach out. One of the things I learned, there, you know, I had so many people that would come to my groups that nobody knew, and when they were able to let tell the tell be open and honest that they love somebody in active addiction, they were blown away with how many people would say, "Me too." Oh my gosh, that's a beautiful uh, message, Donna. And it is so true. And that is why we're here because we don't want people to feel alone in this. Mm-hmm. And there are so many people touched by addiction. If you think of every single person who is struggling with addiction, how many people are actually impacted by it? So you're so right in that message that you are not alone. If you're listening here, you're not alone. Mm-hmm. Um, we are here for you, wrapping you in love and compassion, as I always say. And I really, Donna, I can't thank you enough for being here on the podcast and sharing your vulnerability and your strength and your example of what's possible. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And of course, I will put all your links to your website and everything so people can get a hold of you. Um, and of course, your website is sharingwithoutshame.com. In case people don't get to the notes, I want to make sure they can access you and all your fantastic books. And um, I'm just so thankful for you being here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you want additional support, you can head on over to our website at savingyouiskillingme.com, where we have a wonderful, supportive, compassionate community. We are here for you. You are not alone. We also have a private Facebook group and Instagram feed called Saving You Is Killing Me, Loving Someone With An Addiction. Be sure to subscribe here so you get the latest episodes. And of course, share this with your community and your support groups or anyone that's going through this struggle so we can all work together to take our lives back and restore joy. Thank you so much for joining me, not only today, but week after week. Although I wish we were meeting under different circumstances, I'm so grateful that I get to show up for you and share these episodes so that we can go on this journey together. Until next week, sending hugs.